beautiful passage. All of them have been beautiful as we've been working our way through Isaiah 40 through 48. We noted um, the last time we met in chapter 47, Isaiah provides this final argument presented to the people of God to trust in their Savior and live for the honor of his name. And in one sense, he's been making the arguments throughout, but he makes this final argument in chapter 47. And then he he transitions into chapter 48. And a part of the reason for his argument, if we go back to 47, was again the vanity of idols. And we noted how Baal, he says that Baal bows down in chapter 47. Um, He bows down because what? Um, He's the chief god of the Babylonians. Babylonians, but indeed he has no real power. Nebo, who is Bel's son, he is the god of writings and of wisdom. He is the prophet of the people, but yet he has no real power because it's God who writes on the wall. Remember Belshazzar and who writes on the wall? We see the hand of God writing on the wall that says, now your time is complete. Babylon is fallen, and then the Medes and Persians come in And that begins the process of God fulfilling his promise to return his people. And also Nebo is a worthless idol as well because the people would have paraded him, um, the likeness of him around Babylon. And it's utterly ridiculous that you would serve a God that needs to be carried on your shoulders. And so here in chapter 48, there's a call to hear. This call to hear returns in this final chapter of this section. The people of God have not heard for generations. And now judgment is coming, but at the same time, judgment will not last forever because God's sovereign, gracious plan will unfold. The people of God will be returned to their homeland. God's sovereign and gracious plan of redemption will unfold. They will be redeemed. They will return from exile from Babylon And it will happen through the sovereign hand that is used by God of Cyrus the Persian. Now, what's important about this chapter is this continuing theme of God's graciousness. This is what we've seen throughout. Although you see these repeated arguments about why would you trust idols? Why are you so hard-hearted? In the midst of it, you have to extract from that the graciousness of God. Why does God continue to extend his grace to his people? And he does it for this reason. It is the opposite of them. Uh, They have committed covenant treachery, but God is a God of covenant faithfulness. So what he is saying is despite your covenant treachery, this chapter begins with the reaffirmation that you are hard-hearted. Yes, you're hard-hearted, but my redemptive plan will unfold. It cannot be thwarted by that. And this chapter also shows us several things. Number one, it shows us this, false piety. You see false piety in verses 1 and 2. False piety in chapters, I'm sorry, in verses 1 and 2. You see blatant obstinance in verse 4. Blatant obstinance because it tells us in verse 4, he says, because I know that you are obstinate. There is also in chapter, verse 5, I keep saying chapter, verse 5, there's vain reliance on false gods. It continues, this vain reliance on gods that cannot deliver, because he says in verse 5, 
uh, lest you say, my idol has done it. No, your idol has not done it. It has come about by the sovereign hand of God. And then you also see cunning hearts. But in the midst of these cunning hearts, you see divine purpose and deliverance. That's really verses 9 through 11. And notice the language there. He says, for the sake of my name, I will delay my wrath. I will restrain. I have refined. I have tested. I will not give my glory to another. God is going to act. And despite their covenant treachery, his plan will unfold. It's beautiful. And then at the end of uh, the, the chapter, and that idea of divine purpose and deliverance is really 9 through 21. That's 9 through 21. And then a sober warning comes at the end. And notice this sober warning. There is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. No peace for the wicked, says the Lord. I want you to notice something, this idea of hearing and listening in his actions. Just walk through as we have done throughout this study. Sometimes we stop and just look at this flow of words and thoughts and ideas in a given chapter. Notice verse 1. Hear this, O house of Jacob. Now, right away when we think about hearing, and I'll say this again later, this is not simply hearing a tone. Um, This is hearing with the sense that you should obey, you should respond properly. And we use the word in that sense, do we not? Because we'll say to someone, do you really hear me? You may have heard my words, but the question is, do you actually hear me? And that's implying, will you respond properly? Notice some other words. He says, verse 3, I declare. Now, I just want you right now to see the actions. I proclaim. Verse 3, I acted. Verse 4, I know. Verse 5, I declared. I proclaimed. Notice verse 6, I proclaimed to you. Then in verse 8, I knew. Verse 9, I restrained. Verse 10, I have refined you. I have tested you. Verse 11, I will act. I will not give it to another. Verse 12, I called. Verse 13, I founded the earth. And then he says in 13 as well, when I call to them, notice the language continues in verse 14, the Lord loves him and will carry out his good pleasure. His arm is against the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. Verse 15, I have called him. I have brought him. I will make him. His way is successful. Then he continues, verse 16. And now the Lord God has sent me, he says. And then the language in verse 17. I am the Lord your God who teaches you, who leads you. Then he says in verse um, 20, the Lord has redeemed his servant. 21, he has led them. He has made the water. He is the one who split the the rock. Action, 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 action on the behalf of God. And notice as well, if you go back to the beginning of chapter 48, notice God speaks of himself. In verse 3, he says, it is my mouth. And then he says in verse 9, my name, my wrath, my praise. Verse 11, my own sake, my own sake. Then he says in verse 11, my glory. Verse 13, My hand, my right hand has done all of these things. And then he tells us in verse 18, my commandment. Verse 19, my presence. 
God is enacting his sovereign plan despite the hard-heartedness of the people of God. And it's all centered around the glory of God. We see it from the actions. God is the one that will bring this about. And why does he do it ultimately? For his name and for his glory. Now, the chapter unfolds this way, and let me give this to you. And we're only going to look at two portions of it, I think, even this morning. Uh, Number one would be this, redeemed despite insincere worship. We're going to notice how their worship is insincere in verses 1 and 2. And then we can say redeemed because Yahweh is all-knowing. And we're going to learn in that part of the passage that God is saying, no, I'm the one that brought this about. I'm the one that declared it, lest ye think that your false gods are the ones that led you to this knowledge. It is not true. So what he's saying, essentially, I let you know this ahead of time. I planned it ahead of time. And it proves again that your gods are indeed false, false gods. Then number three would be redeemed to demonstrate his greatness. Redeemed to demonstrate his greatness. We see that in verses six through eight. And that barrage of ideas that says, my name, my praise, my own sake, my own sake, my glory, he communicates as well. And then he redeemed for his glory alone because the passage ends in verse 9 through 11. That is, the section ends in 9 through 11. It ends with, I will not give my glory to another. The fifth consideration here is this, and it's redeemed through his matchless sovereignty. God's matchless sovereignty. What do we mean by that? God has a right, the ability, and the desire to do and act as he pleases. And God's sovereign plan is going to unfold. And this is what we see in verses 12 through 21. And then it ends with this interesting note. Redemption is forfeited by the wicked. It's forfeited by the wicked. The scripture tells us plainly that those who have been justified have what? peace with God. And he's saying to the people of God and to anyone that is listening to this message, the wicked can have no peace because peace only comes in a right relationship with God. So let's just work our way through these first two parts. Redeemed despite insincere worship, verses one and two. Hear this, O house of Jacob, you who are named Israel, And who come forth from the loins of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and invoke the God of Israel, but not in truth nor in righteousness. For they call themselves after the holy city and lean on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. How is it insincere worship? Notice the first two words here. Hear this. So the question is, hear what? And as I said earlier, the idea of hearing is not just that you can discern the sound. It is the idea, what's implied is that the intention to obey, to respond properly. The people of God heard many things. You know, being in the Holy Land and you walk around and you think, here is a place where Christ would have taught. Here is a place where he lived and people heard him, but they did not what? They didn't hear him. They didn't obey him. Imagine, and that's still a fascinating thing to me, to hear the very voice of God, and he's teaching you about himself, and he's teaching you about redemption, and he's teaching you about the future, and some people would literally cover their ears, and they don't want to hear it. 
because it continues on. Even remember in Stephen, and here he is, the voice piece of the Lord, and Stephen is teaching, and the people turn from him, and they, they, they're cut to the quick, if you will, and they're gnashing their teeth, and they're covering their ears because they don't hear. I think some of you can remember that. Um, growing up, there are probably times when some authority told you, are you listening to me? Do you ever remember a parent asking you that question? <laughs> are you listening to me? Yes, I know you hear me. The question is, are you listening? And God is saying to his people, hear what I am saying to you. You are obstinate. Yes, you're obstinate, but I will still redeem you because I made a promise and I'm going to keep that promise. Notice the insincerity of their worship. It's demonstrated in God's really his indictment of them. They swear and they invoke, but it's not in truth. It's not in righteousness. He says, you who come forth from the loins of Judah. That is, and the word can mean like the waters of, um, of Judah. And the question is, what does that mean? And I don't know that we can be absolutely definitive about it. But I think the, the message is you essentially come from the loins of uh, that's your lineage, that's your heritage is what's being communicated. Yes, you can go back and you can look back to Abraham, but you're not behaving like Abraham is what he's trying to communicate. He says, you swear by the name of the Lord, but yet you don't keep it. You invoke the God of Israel, yet for what purposes? It's not in truth nor in righteousness. It's all worthless because you're really not committed to the creator. And what is being said here, your worship is like what Isaiah would say later, your worship is like filthy rags. It's pointless. This is also true of, Christ spoke of this as well. Look with me at uh, Matthew chapter 23. The insincerity of worship. Notice Matthew 23. Then Jesus spoke. What do we see in Isaiah? God speaking, Yahweh speaking, Yahweh saying here. And Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples saying, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and what? What do they do with them? Do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seat at the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. Why? It's all insincere. Notice what he says in verse 12. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be what? Exalted. What a great lesson for us all, isn't it? How does one even come to faith? Well, you come to faith, obviously, by the grace of God, and you come to faith by coming to a point in your life where you humble yourself before the living God, and you realize your extreme need. But sincere worship doesn't, insincere worship doesn't do that because it's resting on one's own laurels. Go back to Isaiah 48. Isaiah 48. So this, the insincerity continues. Notice verse 2. 
So here it's despite their identification with Jerusalem and supposedly leaning on the Lord, they're ultimately leaning on their own self-gratifying religion. Notice the language. It says, for they call themselves after the holy city. And what that means, they're identifying with Jerusalem. They're saying we are, in fact, the people of God. And they lean on the God of Israel. And this word lean is is the sense of dependence. Go back to Isaiah 36. Um, Isaiah 36, verse 6. And here it is. The people of God are under siege by the Assyrians at this stage. And, of course, the Assyrians are defeated by the angel of the Lord. And eventually their time in history fades away. And then notice what the Rapshikah says to the people of God at Jerusalem. He says, Behold, you rely on the staff of this crushed reed, even Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who rely on him. And 36 to 39 is all about a message of relying upon the living God. And God would fight for the city of God, would he not? Jerusalem would be delivered. But here, the people of God had made a bad decision, which was perhaps the Egyptians can help us. And he says, the Egyptians are no one. If you lean on the Egyptians, it's like leaning on a reed that's going to pierce into your hand. It's going to splinter. And the people of God are claiming in chapter 48 that they're leaning on God, but they really aren't. They're leaning on their false gods, these worthless idols. And one could even say, I mentioned earlier, well, it's self-gratifying religion, and it's not even a true religion at all. It's simply the paganism of the culture, specifically Babylon. Insincere worship. But secondly, consider this. Redeemed because Yahweh is all-knowing. All-knowing. Notice verse 3. I declared the former things long ago, and they went forth from my mouth, and I proclaimed them. Suddenly I acted and they came to pass. This idea of former things. Let's look at some of these verses that would communicate it. Look back to chapter 41. God has been saying this throughout this section, these former things, how God acts in the past for his own glory. 41 verse 22. Notice what it says. Let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. As for the former events, declare what they were, that we may consider them and know their outcome or announce to us what is coming. So God is taunting the false gods and the people that rest in them. Let them come and make a declaration if they're supposedly worth your worship. Then in verse 23, declare the things that are going to come afterwards, that we may know that you are gods. Indeed, do good or evil, that we may anxiously look about and fear together. That is, if you can orchestrate the the annals of time, if you can bring about things that are good and evil, maybe we would stand back and we would fear you. But no, you have no power to do that. And he's saying, why do you trust them? Why do you trust these things? Why do you trust these people? Why do you trust these gods? It's senseless. Um, Look at chapter 42. Chapter 42, verse 9. Again, Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I declare them. So he says, yes, eventually 
Cyrus will come. I'm telling you he's coming so that when it occurs, you will realize that I am the living God. What's the point? We, we say it, do we not? Hindsight is what? 2020. You go through a situation and say, boy, now that I see it, I wish that I had made this decision prior to. And what he's saying here, no, no hindsight 2020. If you're truly a God to be trusted, tell me what is going to take place before it takes place. And then look at chapter 43. Again, this theme goes throughout. Chapter 43, and then in verse 9. All the nations have gathered together so that the peoples may be assembled. Who among them can declare this and proclaim to us the former things? Let them present their witnesses that they may be justified or let them hear and say it is true. This idea of witnesses, who is going to take the stand? You remember throughout Isaiah, it's this idea of this court case. God is saying, I'm a faithful God. Let me prove it to you. The gods are worthless. Let me prove it to you. And now he's saying, if you have witnesses that can declare otherwise, bring them to the stand. But there are none. Chapter 44. Chapter 44, verse 6. He says here, Thus says the king, the, the Lord, that is, the king of Israel, the redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. There is no God besides me. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order. And now, the indictment in verse 7, he says, There are times when your false gods may make some general prediction. It's sad that people actually, um, I have one app that I used to use, and it, it was free when it first starts, and you know how those things work. They get you involved in it, and all of a sudden they want you to pay, and if you don't pay, you have to watch all these commercials that interrupt you using the app. Uh, and all of a sudden I started to notice that the apps were for constantly for psychics. Is there that big of a market for psychics? And there's one gal that she calls herself a psychic, and you can hit this number and call in and ask about your future. Now, what, it, what is it that the psychics do? They prey on weak-minded individuals. And what do they do? They say, well, friend, I think you're going to have problems in life. <laughs> oh, profound. <laughs> profound. <laughs> is there someone, I see it here, is there someone in your life who's hurt you, and they've hurt you deeply? profound, right? This is what they do. And what God is saying here to these false idols and those who will trust him, hold on. They may give you some general statement and propose that they are really gods, but let them recount it in order. Give it to me specifically. When is it going to take place? How is it going to take place? Then perhaps we'll listen to them. Until then, delete the app. Amen. Look at chapter 45, chapter 45, chapter 45, verse 21. It says, declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, Yahweh? And there is no God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. I exclusively declare the future. I exclusively have all events in my hands. And here's the beauty of all the things that we've been studying throughout Isaiah 40 to 48 is the reality, as I've said this time and time again, these are not just historical lessons. 
These are just not lessons of constantly reminders of God's sovereignty. This is your life. This same God that controls all the events of this history is the same God that controls the events of your life. And that's why it's a wonder for, you know, just being there in Israel and in Jordan. You look through the timeline of history and the kingdoms that have come and gone, and you realize there's but one that will last forever. And you're on the Sea of Galilee, and you realize that the same God that walked on water and said, peace be still, is the same God that controls your life. One day, I was not feeling too well, so I stayed behind. And at that point, we were staying at a kibbutz that was on the Sea of Galilee. And, um, and I needed to get some sun as well. So I, I was studying and just reading. And it really, it was the whole day just out sitting in that chair, looking out on the Sea of Galilee. And for some reason, it was just still as still could be. And especially in the morning, it was just like glass that was out there. And I reflected on that. And I thought the Son of God, when he spoke, and remember he spoke, what is Isaiah saying? Hear this that came from my mouth. I have said, I have declared, I have proclaimed. The same God, when he spoke, it was what? Stop. No wakes from it. You know, we grew up uh, in Florida, and we go water skiing, and you try to go as fast as you could and throw your skis out and cause the big wakes. And, and when you settled, and even if you went into the water, it would still take a while for it to what? Eventually it would calm down. Not so with the Son of Man. He says, right now. That same re- truth is a reality in your life. You go through difficulty, heartache, pain, and when the Son of Man says enough is enough, it's enough. But when the Son of Man is saying no, this difficulty, this heartache, this trial is for a reason. You will experience some of the wakes, if you will. And in due time, it will be still. But you can also rest assured in this, because this is life. Um, you will experience a time of stillness, but be prepared for what? What can you say? Another wake is coming. It's coming. The same God. This God of this Yahweh was Yahweh that was on the Sea of Galilee. It's Yahweh who has redeemed you. It's Yahweh who controls every event of your life, and you can rest in that. So the former things, he's announced that it's going to take place. I am an absolutely faithful God. Genesis uh, 15, even God spoke of former things to Abraham. He told Abraham there's going to be an exodus. It will take place, and it did take place. So verses 4 and 5, go back to 48, 4 and 5. He makes this point for a reason. 4 and 5 help make the point, how so? Well, we can say this because of God's knowledge of man's frailty. God's knowledge of man's frailty. What is it? Verse 4, because I know that you are obstinate, or you are stubborn. Some have said the word means to be cantankerous. You ever heard of that word before, used before? You're a cantankerous individual. That is, you just, you're stubborn. There's, there's a thick-headedness about you. And he even uses some of this language even further in this text as well, which you'll notice because he says what? Your neck is like an iron sinew. 
And what does God say in the Proverbs that the proud man, when he's a proud man, what will happen to his neck? It will be suddenly what? Broken. Because he's a stiff-necked individual. And when, it's, when they're stiff-necked and you fight against and you resist the living God, something gives. And the, the last, I understand the word of God, it is never God. Amen? You will give. And this is why one can say to themselves, either we can humble ourselves or be humbled. It's surely better, better to humble yourself, isn't it? Have you ever been humbled before? Oh, the question is not have. Uh, the question is how often. Yeah. Yeah. And then notice what he says elsewhere. He says, and your forehead is bronze. And this is where we get the idea, not necessarily from here, but we do say you're a thick-headed person. It doesn't get through. You say, wait a minute, God, you're, you're saying that the people are so um, obstinate and stubborn. Why would you still redeem them? Well, that's the beauty of God's grace, isn't it? How many of you before Christ was not stiff-necked? How many of you before the Lord did not have a forehead of bronze, if you will? See, God understands the frailty of man. Look with me at Psalm 103. In Psalm 103, God understands this. Psalm 103, beautiful psalm. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Don't forget his benefits. He pardons, he heals, he redeems, he crowns, he satisfies. He performs um, wonderful deeds. He is a God of compassion, verse 8. He is gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love and kindness. Notice what he says in verse 9, though. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins. Can you say amen to that? nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his compassion towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Notice verse 14. This is the point. He himself knows our what? Frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. He understands man's frailty. This is also the thought of John chapter 6. And, and in John chapter 6, as his disciples were with him, but he says Christ was not entrusting himself to man because he knew what was in man. And it says in John 6, and many of his disciples were no longer walking with him. I know your hearts. And this is what Christ would say to the religious leaders of the time. I know your hearts. And all of us should praise the Lord because he knows our hearts, but yet he is still faithful to us, is he not? God's anticipation of man's pride. Go back to Isaiah 48. So not only does he understand man's frailty, but look at the anticipation of man's pride. Therefore, since I know you're stubborn, since I know that you wouldn't listen, <laughs> therefore I declared them to you long ago. Because I knew if I declared them to you in time or after the event, this is what you would do. Before they took place, I proclaimed them to you so that you would not say, my idol has done it. No, God has done it. And my graven images and my molten image have commanded them. No, it is Yahweh. I control all things. 
I control the events of your life. And yes, an obstinate people can be redeemed because they're redeemed by a gracious God. A final thought for you, and it is this. Um, and it's simple. Where would we be without the grace of God? Um, on the trip, it came up a, a number of times, and I think Stephen and I, we must have mentioned it three or four times. You walk around and you see so much religion, you know, at the Western Wall. You, you see religion in, like, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which most likely is a place of crucifixion and burial. But you see people in religion, and it, it gets to the point where it's nauseating. It really is. And you see people that are kissing rocks and, and they're wanting to get water from the Jordan River and they want to get water from Galilee. And this is a part of their spiritual pilgrimage. And you just say, there's one place we were supposed to go in Bethlehem. And I mean, I walked in and I was ready just to walk out again. The real significance of it is lost. But here's the reality. Without the grace of God, you could be there. You see sad, sad Roman Catholics that are there without the grace of God and people in the Orthodox Church that, that really aren't serving the Lord. And Without the grace of God, you can be there. And here's the reality. Without the grace of God, you may not have anything to do with religion whatsoever. You could just be living a life of paganism except for God's grace. As it says, so go away, so go I. Be thankful for that. Father, we are thankful for your goodness, grace, and mercy. Help us to appreciate these great truths. In Christ's name, amen.